Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoyed this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Apostle Paul has been arrested. And he hasn't been arrested for anything that he's done wrong. He's been arrested really for his own safety. And the Romans are trying to figure out who this guy is because he hasn't been around in a, in a long time now. It's been about 20 years since he's been in Judea. And, 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 and you know, they're sitting there going, who, who is this guy? But the Romans could easily see that the, this guy was causing a reaction amongst the Jews. Uh, they, they had a big problem with Paul, especially amongst the Jewish leadership. And, you know, he was controversial uh, at a time for the, for the Romans. This was around 50 to 60 AD. And, you know, that the, there were starting to be growing tensions between the Jews and the Romans. And those of you that maybe that, that have studied your history or know the history, in and, and 70 AD, the, the Romans basically, you know, it was not a stellar year for the Jews. The Romans basically came in and, and said, you know what, we're tired of you guys. We're tired of you, just your uprisings, you're getting upset. Couldn't you be more like the Jews or, or the Africans and the Northern Europeans? I mean, they're all working with us. You keep fighting us. You're so independent, you think your God's the only God, and, and you're causing us so many problems. We're not going to put up with you anymore. So literally, they came in, and in 70 AD, Titus came down from Rome and smashed Israel. What we know is modern-day Israel today. They just smashed it to pieces. I'm talking about literally stone by stone, they threw it off the temple. Uh, in fact, if you go visit today, uh, where you stand, there are, are generations of, of stuff underneath you, and the street level has risen about 80 feet because of the destruction that Rome came in. They, they came in and they destroyed. So people just built right on top of it. Bring in some soil, cover it down, let's start building from this point. So it's amazing what they did to, to Rome, in fact, uh, or to, to Israel. In fact, they even went down to the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, and grabbed salt and they plowed it into the ground to basically tell the world this is what we will do to you if you keep acting like this. You act like the Jews, we'll make it where you can't even live in the places that you lived. Because now you can't even grow plants because we just put salt in the ground. I mean, this is how, you know, the, and this was actually called the Pax Romana, um, you know, the peace of Rome. <laughs> Not very peaceful. It's kind of, you know, by that, by that heavy-handedness. Well, the life of Paul is right before that time. And, and Paul, he's actually martyred by Caesar. Uh, Caesar. Caesar. But Paul lived in a period where there was a growing tension. So you remember that Paul was arrested and, and uh, you know, and 400 soldiers were, 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 uh, were taking him from, from Israel to Caesarea or from, from Jerusalem to Caesarea and they rushed him out of there. And here's this little old guy in the middle of all these soldiers. And these soldiers really come to, to like and respect Paul. And a lot of them come to, to, to know the Lord over time. So the commander, Lysias, sends Paul to, to Felix the governor. And Felix is supposed to get to the bottom of all this. Paul is in Caesarea where, where you know, the, the, it's a town that was built by Herod the Great. And he built it, uh, you know, he, he wanted to out-Roman the Romans. Because, you know, he, he had a little, little different bloodline. 
You know, Herod was, was not full-blooded Italian, so he compensated it for, for being a better Roman than most of the Romans. So he built Caesarea, a beautiful city. In fact, he called together the builders and, and said, I want a place that's more beautiful than Alexandria, you know, that was built by Alexander the Great. He said, I want one that's more beautiful than that. And he told them to build an all-weather port. And what that means is any time during the year, you can bring a ship in there. And, and his, you know, his, his, uh, all his people got together and they said, well, you know, that can't be done. So the next group of architects and engineers found a way. First group he killed. You don't tell Herod the Great. It can't be done. So they built him. In fact, last week I misspoke. I, it was another port I was thinking about uh, that they actually had their own cement uh, mixture and they kind of, uh, you know, learned how to do that under, under water. They did that during that time. But this one actually did a little more research in. But they took, t- took blocks of limestone that were 50 foot by 50 foot by 10 feet and they lowered them 120 feet into the water. They had a 200 foot wide uh, seawall that they built out into the water that created this port. It was enough stone to build a pyramid. Think about that for a second. Enough stone in the water to build a pyramid. They made a huge water break for the ships. And they built a huge temple in honor of Caesar and, and the larger, you know, and, and they built a couple of towers out there, you know, at the entrance. And the larger of the two towers, they, they, they named Drusus in honor of his young son. So they invited Caesar down to dedicate it. So they built temples, they built theaters, they, they built the, the Hippodrome where yearly games were held there. And every governor after Herod stayed in this palace. It was a beautiful Roman place. So Paul comes before Felix in AD 57. Now who's Felix? It's Marcus Antonio uh, Libertus Felix. And Marcus Antonio Libertus Felix is an interesting guy. And and his name, uh, Libertus, or, you know, it stands for Liberty. It was added on later because he was actually a a freed slave. Felix, the governor, was actually a freed slave. In fact, he was owned by Mark Anthony's daughter and Caesar's mother, Octavia. And he served them both really well that he actually freed, uh, you know, freed Felix. And his brother was also, uh, you know, uh, there as a slave and he was rising uh, under Caesar. And he actually became the chief financial officer, you know, for, for lack of a better term, for the Roman Empire. So through connections and understanding politics, he became the governor of Judea. And Paul stands before him in Acts 24. So let's look at it. We're going to pick up right there at verse 23. The Jews had hired a a lawyer to be, you know, the talk before Felix. And they used all these words that would have, you know, concerned the, the, the governor. Like, oh, he's a troublemaker. You can't trust this guy. You don't need any of these troublemakers around. But none of it worked. And in verse 23, he picks up and he says, He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish. She sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So after the trial and everybody goes home, you know, he, he, got, his, he, he got this interest in, in knowing more about Christ and what Paul was talking about. There's something just drawing him in. 
And we know it is the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit draws people to Him. And then we have the responsibility to either respond to that or not. In verse 25 it says, As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Now why would he be afraid? Well, Paul's talking to him about righteousness. And Felix is comparing that to his own life. Paul's talking to him about self-control and the judgment to come. <coughs> you notice that Paul doesn't do anything to help free himself. He doesn't go in and beg for his life. He doesn't go in and say, hey, a little money puts aside. You know, how much would it take? He's in there talking about righteousness. He's in there talking about self-control. He's in there talking about the judgment to come. He's not trying to kiss up to Felix, even though Felix really wanted a bribe. He goes on and says, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. So that's Felix talking to Paul. At the same time, he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So Paul is in prison for two years with some freedom, but he is not in control of his own life. Here is the Apostle Paul when he's in his 50s. Life should be kind of settled down for this guy now. But Paul is stuck in Caesarea, and yet he's having conversations with the leadership. He's having conversations with the soldiers. He is there for a reason. What he would like to do is what? What we would like to do, right? He'd like to hang with his friends. For him, he's a teacher, so he would like to teach. He would like to enjoy life. What he would like to do is not what he is allowed to do. Because he did something early in his life. He said, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. You can take me where you want. I will go where you want. I will do what you want. I will say what you want me to say. Now, these are easy words coming out, out of our mouths, aren't they? Easy words to say, Lord, you're in control. Now, some of you might, that might be a hard road to get to. But once we say it once, and the Lord does take control for our life, and we, you know, later on we're like, okay, Lord, yeah, you're in control. Until the Lord says, you know, I'm glad you feel that way. This is why I'm assigning you to this location. Well, I mean, Lord, this place would be much better if it wasn't a jail cell. And the, all these ungodly people, why did you stick me here? Well, this is the will for Paul's life at this point. And later on, we'll see how many soldiers were affected by Jesus through Paul. And the gospel literally is pumped into the whole world. The guy who wrote to the Romans is the guy that they're chained to. It's the book we go, oh, Romans, there's so much great stuff there. They're actually tied to, you know, chained to the guy that wrote that book. And he's telling these guys the, the logic and reason to follow Jesus. So here Paul is, you know, Paul is prisoner and there's a new governor. Literally, Paul's prison ministry starts right here. Paul is in prison the rest of his life. This is the beginning of, of what we call the, you know, Paul's fourth missionary journey, if you want to call it that. But it's different than all the others. He is not in charge of the itinerary. Oh, don't we love it when we go on a trip and we're in charge of the itinerary? Paul is not in charge of, of where he's going and who he's going to talk to at this point. 
He is a prisoner for the rest of his life, we think. In fact, you know, some scholars think that, that he actually got released for about a year and then he was rearrested. And during that year, he went to Spain. We don't know. We kind of think, but we're not sure about that. But we know he gets arrested and he is martyred. But there's a new governor right now. Chapter 25. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up, to, went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, what is he doing? Well, he's got his work cut out for him. Because Felix, the guy that was in charge, really made a mess out of the place. The Jews are totally hacked off. So Festus comes and checks out his new digs in Caesarea and goes, Hey, these, these are pretty nice. But then he goes on to Jerusalem. He's a very good politician. He goes to see the leadership. He wants things to be a win-win for everybody. Because if Festus can get this place in control, man, he's going to look good for the Roman officials over in Rome. He's going to look good for Caesar. And he says, let's work out this, you know, let's work this out so, so guys, you can have your freedom while obeying Rome at the same time. So verse 2, it says, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Man, what a long memory they have. Two years later, man, the governor, sh- I mean, the new governor shows up and they're like, oh, we, we, we want to talk about that Paul dude you got over there. Man, what a long memory. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. Festus senses something is going on here. He doesn't quite understand it, so he's pretty wise. Why don't you guys come back with me? Verse 6, it says, After spending eight to ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day... And this is, you know, he's trying to show to the Jews, this is important for me. When we get back, the next day after I got back, you guys are coming. He's, it, he convened the court and ordered Paul to be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense... I've made, I have done nothing wrong against the laws of the Jews and against the temple or against Caesar. Now, Paul has had two years, a lot of opportunities to think through what he would want to say when he got an opportunity like this. How am I going to handle it when, when somebody asks, tell me about Jesus? He's thought about this. Have you thought about what your answers would be when somebody comes to you and says, hey, what is this Jesus thing all about? Paul's had a lot of time here. Festus, wishing to do Jews a favor, said to Paul, (laughs) it's kind of funny, Festus actually takes the role of prosecutor here almost, instead of judge. He's really trying to, to, to please the Jewish leadership. He says to Paul, are you, <coughs> are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Now, Paul's answer is going to be very important right here. If he says, yes, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem, he probably would never see Rome. Why? Because the Jews really want to kill him. And he knows, he understands that they would kill him on the road. He can't say to, to, to Festus, now, now Festus, I mean, you're the new governor here and everything. You don't quite understand everything's going on. They're going to ambush me along the way. 
You're not going to send enough soldiers to protect me. And another thing, apparently I'm your bargaining chip for you. You know, I'm I'm the one you're kind of using to, to try to please them. He can't say those things. You can't say that kind of stuff to, to somebody in charge. Have you ever been there when you wish you could just say the truth? Maybe it's just me. You wish you could say, here's what's really going on. I will tell you what exactly what's happening because I figured it all out. What does he say? Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. He's basically saying, you just heard the case, and you understand there's no evidence here. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. He is saying, I refuse to go to Jerusalem. And the only way to do it is to say the following four words as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. And this is exactly what he does. It is a planned strategy on Paul's part. He He has thought this through. He has planned this. No doubt he has prayed all the way through this. And he has decided that that God said, I'm going to Rome. Therefore, any other direction other than toward Rome is not a good direction. I am not going down to Jerusalem. Now, Paul knows the Roman law. Paul knows the rights he has as a Roman citizen. Now, as an American citizen, do you know the rights that you have? If you don't, find out. Because they're important as a citizen of whatever country you're in to know your rights. Don't let someone take your rights from you. You need to exercise those rights. So Paul, he plays that trump card. He appeals to Caesar. Now this is going to be the hard way to get to Rome. Caesar just doesn't sit around, you know, going, hey, well, yeah, just bring in all the prisoners. I'll talk to them. I have all day long. You know, this is kind of a glitch in Roman law that, that probably sounded really good when they, when they were thinking about the Roman laws. How do we want to, you know, what's our country going to look like? It sounded really good when they began. Yeah, you know, any citizen can appeal to Caesar. Yet Caesar's kind of busy. So it's not like everybody, you know, that line's got to be a pretty long line. I mean, Caesar ends up being the supreme court for all the Roman Empire. One man. I wonder how long that line was. Men would die in prison waiting to talk to Caesar. Not that they did anything right or wrong, but just waiting to get a judgment. Verse 12, it says, After Festus had confirmed with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. You know, that he kind of gets, I, I don't have that same authoritative voice, you know. But he gets that authoritative voice. You, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. I love this. It sounds so authoritative, but he has no choice. All he's doing is rubber stamping. Okay, you appeal to Caesar. Stamp that, baby. He has no choice. But, you know, it always comes as a speech, right? After a few, after a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived to Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. So Luke sort of kind of changes subjects here, but not completely. 
The new governor is in the area, so, you know, it's time for a royal barbecue. It's time for all the leaders to come in and, you know, they get all their fancy clothes out and stuff. You know, we know about, you know, you know we know of, of Agrippa. And we'll talk a little bit about him later, except to say that he wasn't much of a king of anything. He was almost a figurehead king. All his power is because of his name, Herod. Herod Agrippa, but it's Herod. It was a very important name at this point in history. So he comes down to, and you know, they're having a barbecue, they're, they're hanging out. And in verse 14 it says, since they were spending many days there, you know, they've hit every show. They've done about as much as they could have done to entertain this guy. Festus is going, okay, I really don't know this guy. He's hanging out, but you know, we talked about every great restaurant around. It's getting kind of boring. What do we talk about now? I know what we can talk about. Maybe you can help me with this. Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there was a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. Like this was his thinking at the time, right? It's all, oh, yeah, I told him all this. And Paul's sitting there. Paul's the one who appealed to Caesar. When they came, verse 17, it says, When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered a man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any, any of the crimes that I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with, their own, uh, with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Now, Herod Agrippa would have been very acquainted with the story. He's not new in the town. He's not new into the country. But Festus doesn't know this. Festus doesn't know that the Herodian family had many ties into the Jesus thing. Because, I mean, since Grandpa had all the babies in Bethlehem, uh, you know, killed out of paranoia, when the wise men came and said, you know, we would like to meet the king of the Jews, and he goes, well, you're meeting him right now. And they go, no, 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 the one that's just been born. And he got all paranoid, so he sent out, you know, to kill every baby that was two years and younger. You see... Herod and his family were part Jewish. He would know all about what Festus was saying. In fact, he was probably elbowing his wife and kind of, you know, rolling his eyes a little bit like, man, I thought this thing was dealt with. Can you believe we're back here once again? And Bernice, who happens to also be his sister, would also know since they had the same grandpa, which would make their children his nephews also, I think which is a whole different story. But it makes it easier for holidays about, you know, which in-laws to go to. Sorry. How messed up is this? Paul had to be real frustrated with all of this. He's an old Pharisee. And man, the Pharisees couldn't stand the Herodian family because of the way, you know, their actions. So verse 20, it says, I was at a loss as how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand there, uh, stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over to the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. 
Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. You know, this really helps Festus out. Really starts to help Festus figure out what's going to happen here because Caesar liked it that when you sent somebody to him, you know, that was a prisoner, that they would actually have real charges against them. Because you wouldn't send somebody who didn't. Can you imagine? Festus is new in town and this guy's appealed to, to you know, Caesar. There's no real charges. This guy's in a pickle. This guy's in a bind. This guy's going to stand, you know, uh, he's going to send Paul to stand before Caesar. And everyone will be treating Caesar like he's a god except for Paul. The small, scrawny guy. Caesar will say, and what is this guy charged with? And everyone standing there will say, well, we, we don't know. Well, where is he from? He's from Palestine. Who sent him? Festus. Well, I don't know what's going on, but you've got to deal with that Festus guy. Send me somebody who doesn't have charges. You can see the, the thought pattern here. He's got to figure out what are the charges? What are we going to do here? Caesar is going to say, well, who did we send down there to be in charge? So Festus is glad that he can attach somebody else's name to this thing now. This is like Pilate sending Jesus before Agrippa's dad. You figure it out. But Jesus wouldn't talk to Herod. Why? Well, it might have something to do with him cutting off his cousin's head, John the Baptist. This was a tense time in human history and a very, very corrupt one. And it was back then too. Corrupt then and now. Verse 23. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with, a, with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officials and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said... King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I've found that he's done nothing deserving of death, but because he's made appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about them. Therefore, I brought him before you, especially before you, King Agrippa. You know, he's totally brown-nosing here. To the audience, to you, King Agrippa. So as a result of this investigation, I may, have, my, I may have something to write, for I think it is unreasonable to send a prison, prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Now, I really wish we could finish the story this morning. But we're kind of getting close to time here. And the Lord put a few other things on my heart. So we're going we're gonna to hold off on the rest of the story. But if you want to get ahead for next week, read Acts chapter 9 again. Because 24 years before this incident, Paul said to, or God said to, to Paul through Ananias, You will stand before kings and talk about me. 24 years for God to keep his promise. Doesn't that just really irritate you about God? Bugs the daylight out of me. God makes the promises to us, and, and, and the longer they don't happen, we start to doubt it, don't we? 
It's actually good for us, I think, in some ways, for us to think back and go, did, did God really promise that to me, or was that just bad pizza that day? You know, did God really? And if God made you a promise, He's going to keep that promise. But He will not keep it in the fashion that you want Him to keep it, or, or the time frame that you tell Him to, to, to keep it in. Or use the people that you tell them to use. Or the circumstances that you go, hey, this would be the perfect circumstance, God. Your deadlines will pass and pass and pass and pass and pass until you start to learn that you can't put deadlines to God. Why? He is God. He is in control. We love to tell Him He is in control. Until we have to leave it, uh, live it. You know, I, I, in the early 90s, there was that song, You Are In Control. I don't know if any of you, maybe it's just me. I remember the course. And my old pastor used to say, You and you and you are in control, because that's really how we sing it. I am in control, and sometimes I allow you to be in control, sort of God, but I really hold on to that. You know, my son loves me. He loves it when I play with him. He loves it when I toss him in the air. He loves it when I feed him ribs. He loves it when I pick him up. He loves it when I give him zerberts. He starts laughing. He loves it when I play hide and seek and I crawl around the red chair and I leave my legs out just far enough where he can see him as he comes around the chair and he starts laughing. He loves it when I snort like a pig. I won't do that for you, okay? Only for him. But, but, he can't stand getting dressed. He can't stand having his diaper changed. That boy can move. He can't stand getting into his car seat. Half the time it takes both my wife and I to get him in the car seat. Which is really a bummer when it's only one of us taking him somewhere. But right now, I am in charge. I am in charge of him. And life would be so much easier if he would just relax when we dressed him. Or we change his diaper. Or we put him in the car seat. But he, he knows that I'm in charge, but man, does he fight. It's the same way with God. We love it when he provides for us. He, we love it when we're out playing with our friends and he's sitting there going, yep, that's my children. Loving, laughing, and playing together. But when he tries to be in charge, boy, do we start squirming. We start crying. And we're acting like, you know, he doesn't understand, or we don't understand what's happening. And we're like, why are you doing this to me, God? The Apostle Paul's fourth missionary journey is the most fruitful of all the journeys. And yet, he will do less than he has ever done. Why is that? What about the season of your life? Are you frustrated with what's happening in your life right now? Well, I can tell you, you're not alone. We are frustrated people, and we live in a very frustrated world. And the people who are truly at peace are the people who truly tell God, you are in control. I surrender all. Truly let God be in charge. I say let Him be in charge. He will keep 
His promises. You may only be in Acts 17 of your life, and you got seven more chapters before you stand before Agrippa in 24 years. Are you going to flame out before you get there? Are you going to stop serving? Are you going to get bitter? Are you going to try to fix it all again? Whatever it is, are you going to take your hands back off of it and say, Lord, I fully submit to you. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are in charge of our lives. No matter how much we fight, no matter how much we squirm, Lord, we know and understand that you're in charge. And I pray that you give us the strength to allow you to do your business. Allow us to pull our hands back from whatever situation we're going through. Whether it's work, whether it's home life, whether it's with our children, whether it's with our parents, whatever it is, Lord, that we allow you to do your magic because you're in control of everything. You teach us along the way. We so enjoy it, Lord, when you let us, let us play. We so enjoy it when you bring those, those things into our life that you provide for us. And, and, and we're just loving it. We're just laughing. And you enjoy that. And we enjoy that. But we don't like to have our diaper changed, Lord. We don't like to be told what to do or how to do it. And sometimes you have to set us aside. You have to hold us down. You have to strap us in the car seat to get your will done. And I pray, Lord, that we see your hand in those things. That we not get too frustrated with this life. That we allow you to be in control. We love you, Lord. Amen.